0: In the second half we talk about Kev's tours in Iraq and Afghanistan, what his role was and what it was like to operate the Tornado GR4 in a live theatre. We wrap up this interview with some questions from our Patrons and discuss his new book REF Centenary Flypast. Thank you and enjoy. We're going to talk about you flying on live operations uh, with on the GR4. So, I mean, tell us what tours you flew on, and we'll get in, into a bit more detail then. Yeah, so um, I think like
1: almost everyone in my era, you know, started off with the uh, post sort of um, Gulf War two. So for me, I didn't, I wasn't part of that, but I certainly did a fair amount of time um, uh, in, in Iraq. Uh, in those early sort of 2000s, you know, 2000 sort of three, four, five, that sort of time onwards. Um, and again, we were based out of uh, Qatar, uh, Al Hudid, at that point, with a long sort of hour trog up the uh, up the northern Arabian Gulf mm-hmm. to to enter at pretty much Basra. And then we spent a huge, in fact, nearly all of our time, um, you know, monitoring, you know, pipelines and and power lines and, and things like that, just wow. searching for for activity. Uh, quite challenging to do because we had the old tiled uh, 500 pods, 400 and 500 pods, which were, which were quite difficult to see uh, huge amounts of detail. Uh, but most of our work was overwatch, overwatch and taking lots and lots of photos. So uh, many, many hours sat in the, uh, in the jet. Uh, you know, we could be sort of up for eight hours at a time doing this stuff, which was two or three refueling brackets um, and, uh, and also also sort of times of the day or night. And again, if things happened, you know, if there were events that happened, we could be moved anywhere around the country uh, at a moment's notice. So, uh, you know, an awful lot of sort of, um, sort of contingent planning that went on airborne as well as on the ground. Um, we rotated through Iraq quite a lot, along with all the other squadrons uh, doing that. And then, then obviously Afghanistan started. So we spent a fair amount of time uh, in Kandahar um, when the tornado took over from Harrier. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and again, another very interesting experience. Uh, and really it was it was those those were the two main ones I did uh, and then had a very very brief sort of period of time in in sort of op shader so the the the, the uh, You know the Iraq Syria uh, element when we were based out of Cyprus But again, I was only there for a very very short period of time a couple of weeks because I was actually operating in the, the standards um, and Standards unit role at that point rather than an operational squadron
0: yeah, so like uh, talking about your first tour um yeah. What was it like? And you're saying like, you know, um, you were taking lots of photos. Would that be mainly on your end? Would you be like dealing with all that or would the pilot also have some sort of input in that?
1: Yeah. So a lot of the planning for, for the photography side of stuff, the reconnaissance was, was, was you know, you do it before you even took off. Uh, and you had a list of sort of points of interest that you needed to go and, and get photos of. And there'd be for all different reasons that we rarely found out what they were for. Um, <laughs> it was literally a case, here's, you know, 40 or 50 points or so, um, hoover them up and, and come back. And, and frankly, our our role and our job was to try and get that planning down to an absolute T. So we spent the minimum amount of time up there collecting that, doing the tasks and, and, and get the aircraft back. But you know, again, most of the time we'd still be up somewhere between four and sort of six, seven hours or so doing doing those tasks. Um, it it was, uh, it, it wasn't the most interesting flying, if I'm honest. You know, we were often you know up at height and um, and and you had this small control panel in the back where you you know the old days of the digital joint recce pod was mm-hmm. uh, was manual, so you you literally switched it on when you got to a point that the you know you planned in you pressed a little button that said event and that that kind of told the image analyst um you know where where you where you were pretty much a beam the um or overhead the the target points they they would get that little marker that so they could go and look at that piece of tape and then you'd switch the uh, switch the camera off and then you'd fly on to the next point and you'd pretty much repeat that um until you collected all of your all of your points of interest the interesting stuff really kind of came when um when you're sort of battling at weather so you may have to change your heights and and the like which involved a little bit of you know software and kit manipulation Mm -hmm. Uh, but but on the whole it was you know those sorts of sorties were fairly um fairly quiet for us Uh, and certainly at the time the rules of engagement really meant we were incredibly restricted about what we could and couldn't do so so for us we were predominantly I'd say you know nearly 100% of the time in 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 that in that you know kind of
0: passive um, reconnaissance role. And this is going to sound like a really boring question, but you mentioned that uh, you were up air like for about four to six hours, what did you eat? What did you drink? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, probably not very healthy stuff to be honest.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it, they, they were, it was uh, chocolate bars, you know, you got like air crew rations, but um, they weren't, it, it certainly wasn't very healthy. I think one day as a as a bit of a joke, someone decided that they'd, they'd sneak a pot noodle into someone else's lunch box and um, <laughs> Of course, you know, noodling. The God, yeah. it's just, where are you going to get your hot water from? But um, yeah, it was <clears throat> bottles of water and, and 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 chocolate bars, and you know, I think someone took some skittles once, and then uh, they end up all over the place. And, <laughs> not a
0: good. good, not a good, not a good option there. I don't think.
1: But, uh, so that's that's not a great place to be when you're you know, trying to try and find all the skittles that are fallen underneath the ejection suit. And you can
0: imagine the engineers weren't particularly. Oh happy. God, yeah, I bet you were in trouble when you got down. <laughs> <laughs> but like yeah, you mentioned you also flew in Afghanistan. So what was the difference uh, flying over in Afghanistan compared to Iraq?
1: Yeah, predominantly we were the, the main difference again is you know you're you're based inside the theatre that you are are operating in. So you know at Kandahar you're you, you're in you're sort of in the thick of it. Um, whereas when when you were in, in Iraq. Uh, you know, we were the, the base was not the, the base was a you know effectively relatively safe location. Kandahar all changes. You know, you're you're now uh, within you know rifle range, within mortar range of of, of anything that kind of happens like that, and that was a regular event for us as well. Yeah. So, you know, the very nature of being at Kandahar was very very different to to anything most of us have experienced before. Um, you know, the, the carriage of personal weapons uh, was a was a normal thing. You know, you take it with you to the gym um wow. you, know, you take it with it with you to the to the loo you know you you'd, you'd always have a, a weapon strapped to your your body sort of thing um there were there were often rocket attacks and mortar attacks so you, you know the siren and a golf and you'd be laying on the floor um you know you know sort of waiting for the impact which you may or may not hear or you may or may not hear it shoot over your head and, and then you know you have body armor on that was you know and, and helmets and then you'd be sitting in a effectively a dugout waiting for the all clear to go off once they'd found where the weapons had impacted and the like um and the other major difference i think was we, we ended up doing a lot of close air you know, ground close air support and, and air support working with the, the the british army as well as as everyone else and you know the, the force had a lot of um a lot of busy times as well certainly when the the army uh, were were you know experiencing their very busy times a lot of our role was was providing direct support, and of course, because the, the British Army had Helmand, uh, and us in uh, us in Kandahar, we were we were relatively close to that. So you know, everyone was everyone was well aware of the the, the dire ground situation sometimes, and uh, and really, our, our role was there was there was some some you know reconnaissance photo taking, but a lot of it was that sort of close air support and providing assistance directly to to the troops on the ground. Um, and we also held a sort of ground close air support role. So you know, a battle of Britain you know bell goes and you scramble out run out to the jet it's something that we hadn't done as a force for for a long time before that um and uh and that required a degree of training and setting up the jet differently so you could get the aircraft airborne within a matter of minutes mm-hmm. uh, uh, at any point of the day or night so again just very different ways of operating all up at sort of you know higher levels um and and then and the weapon types we were using in in Afghanistan were the dual mode seeker brimstone so again we we hadn't we'd used that a little bit at the back end of, of Iraq but but again a, a, a new sort of weapon I suppose uh, and, and paveway force and moving away from the old sort of enhanced paveway series that we' uh, we'd had before so again a complete change in
0: capability for the aircraft when we came to operating uh, in Afghanistan being in the thick of it you as you say like you were working like you know probably closely with other nations but I, Would would that be like a daily task, like where you you know you have to call the U.S. Air Force and same calling? But you know what I mean. Or the Europeans, like how did it work? Um.
1: So the sort of daily tasks were. I mean, they're all centrally controlled. So essentially, we got sort of an air, kind of like an air tasking order. You know, for each each day, Uh, and that would range. Uh, really depending on which tasks around the whole theater the whole you know area of responsibility were were prioritized by higher headquarters Mm -hmm. so you know you could literally be anywhere and one day you could be in helmand working with the british army the the next day you could be working with some u.s special forces the next day you could be talking to some belgian troops you know and and so it really depended on who who needed the assistance um, and for what roles and you know again you could go from you can go from nothing happening absolutely nothing happening to crikey everything's just kicked off and you know you, you speak to the guy on the ground and all you can hear is gunshots and mortars going off and all the rest of it and you can look through the through your targeting pod and have a look down and see what's going on and just see sort of firefights going on, on the ground so you know very very um strange environment to be operating in and and you can go from like I say you know almost pootling around waiting for something to happen in a uh you know because you're in a called an XCAS stack so there's a bunch of jets just kind of waiting to be tasked but nothing particular to do uh through to being incredibly busy within a matter of a few minutes so you know your arousal levels could go from low and, and it had to shoot to very high um in in, in almost minutes so um, yeah very different way of operating
0: and obviously this is maybe a moral uh, question here but uh did you, like when you were kind of lo- loitering around, did you want something to happen or did you not want it to happen? Obviously, being trained as a NAV, you might have wanted that, but like your personal perspective on that, that'd be great.
1: Yeah, I mean, totally, honestly, we wanted not things not to happen. Yeah. Um, because if things were happening, that that meant that, you know, people's lives were, you know, were, exactly, were yeah. around, you know, so... Um, the, the the moral side of stuff is something we looked at in incredible detail and we had very very strict rules of engagement legal um requirements within things like targeting directives and uh you, you know obviously the you know you know all, all the all all the legal stuff that sits behind what you're doing so um and again there there was Sometimes it was yes, legally you could do something, you know, you, you could do something, but, but should you, you know, is it the right thing to be doing? Exactly. Um, at that particular time, and of course, you know, c- civilian uh, sort of casualties and and damage to civilian property was incredibly important for us to to avoid. And um, you know, sometimes it was what what else can we do to 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 break that contact? Can we do a show of force, for example? So it was escalatory um and, and so for us of course it was if nothing's happening it's a good day um because it means that the guys on the ground aren't getting shot at and you know as, as we all know there were there were times and weeks and months where where there was a lot of people coming back in in the back of a C1, c17 you know to to mm. to, to Bryce norton and you know you, you could see these things as they started to develop and um and and you were just hoping that it wouldn't end up with those things so yeah counterintuitive you train all your life to do some things and, and and actually the last thing you want is for it to happen um but but that's the reality of it for for me personally
0: and you probably have uh you know several uh, memorable moments but uh is the one that sticks out in your mind uh, flying on ops like Iraq and Afghanistan
1: I mean there, there there are multiple I think I I think the things that I remember most are are almost where you you go from those sort of very very Kind of almost like low arousal levels, so nothing much is happening, <clears throat> uh, and then it, it shoots up very, very quickly to 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 um, to, to to an event where you're, you're you know you're typing coordinates into the aircraft type of thing for in preparation for for something happening. Um, li- likewise, the amount of times you get there and not get approval because we always had to get approval for pretty much everything we did uh, unless it was particular things under say self defence, but there was always this approvals process that you'd go through. I think one of the ones that sticks out most is is, um, is uh, a couple of good friends of mine, you know, and it was it was not related to a enemy action or anything like that. Is you know we lost one of the jets on the off the end of the runway um, uh, at Kandahar. You know we ended up with 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 us losing a tornado. Both the crew thankfully were okay, but you know, wouldn't say it was a great highlight, but it's certainly something that sticks in my mind is just the, the the dangers and the realities I think of operating in uh, in these sorts of environments.
0: Yeah, was the Tornado um, GR4, would you say it was the right aircraft for these um, environments and operations at this time?
1: Yeah, I would actually, and, and the reason is that it had a great fuel load, um, it had a great weapons fit, and I think having two people in a cockpit where you could really discuss some of the intricacies of the, of the uh, uh, legal aspects, the uh, targeting side of things... Um, and the, sort of the rules of engagement was was hugely beneficial. The, the weapon suite was varied you know with a mix of of, of a, a twenty seven millimeter cannon um, you know some dms brimstone weapons and and four and, and fours um, meant that you could pretty much you know ad, adapt whatever you needed for any particular situation uh, likewise you know we could carry the raptor pod, which was um, no, no one enjoyed doing a raptor sortie because it was again taking photos this great big canoe underneath the aircraft yeah. which which was painful, but, you know, you you could hoover up humongous amounts of data and get all that sent back to, to the analysts. So again, incredibly valuable um, position to be in. And, you know, we, we could stay on task for, for, for longer than most other than say a B1 or something like that, but, you know, longer than most other fast jet platforms, which meant you got the continuity of service to the, to the, to the chap on the ground, uh, which again is, is incredibly beneficial for, for, for keeping eyes on a particular area or or tracking a particular you know vehicle target or whatever it may be at the time so um yeah i think it was a great aircraft um performance limited in some respects of course um uh, you know it's again not designed to be at those sort of heights in those sort of temperatures um with, with those sort of weights but uh but it did an incredibly incredibly good job and uh, it, the, the aircraft itself and crews and engineers like i said before did a did a, did a cracking job.
0: And she's a beauty of course so that always makes it better. <laughs> well
1: there's but, nothing uh, I remember at Lossymouth Mouth you know walking you know on the on the squadrons there you know when the haz doors open uh you know in, in that early morning and it it just it it just looks you know like it's ready to go and um it it's an incredible view you know from the front and it looks even even better when you've got you know weapons and the, and the like underneath it it looks like a proper war goer it's it's sort of ready to ready to go it's uh, nothing it beach business isn't it. <laughs> It sure does. It means business. Yeah.
0: So, Kev, yeah, how many hours did you get on the Tornado GR4? Yeah,
1: so I got uh, just over twenty-two hundred hours in the end. Wow. Uh, so, it, yeah, it's uh, a good, a good accumulation um, <clears throat> and a really good split as well between sort of you know the the low level stuff we did at the beginning of the career through to the more medium level work and higher level work that we did at the. Um, at the end uh, in terms of our altitudes we were flying so a real nice split um and probably about 10-15 percent of that was night flying hours as well which was was another level of intensity when, uh, when at low level on night vision goggles in the scottish highlands so um uh, so yeah a, a great career i mean there are a few guys that managed to get four or five i think there's even a couple of people who got six thousand hours on the type
0: uh, which is absolutely incredible we've got some questions here from our patrons if you're happy to answer them of course right so this is from Noel. Uh, as always even though the gr4 was for air to ground um, air to ground uh, any dast missions or exciting missions against simulated air defense or intercepting aircraft for the gr4
1: yeah, so we we did a little bit of of um, sort of dissimilar air combat. Um, I mean, predominantly, you know, if we did any air combat, which was rare, to be honest, we did a little bit against the Hawks and, and the F3s in training. Uh, I I didn't personally do any, but um, but there was some done against. I think the I think there were some F22s right at the very end, uh, oh, wow. which was incredible. <laughs> the GR4 lasted about fifteen seconds. I think. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah, but. but uh, you know, we, we we did a little bit of, of, of air combat with with, uh, with with various units, and certainly with some of the bigger missions <clears throat> um, and, and some of the bigger exercises, such as Red Flags or or sort of the tactical leadership programs in in uh, in, in Europe. Um, you know, you'd, you you could occasionally get mixed up into into a, a degree of. I said a degree because it would never end up in a big sort of dogfight, but a yeah. degree of sort of what we could sort of term a dissimilar air combat, um, and that would be of course with things like F-15s or Greek F-4s or or whatever it is. So there was there was a bit, but you know, like you say, predominantly it was a an air to ground platform, and and wherever possible, the first thing we would do would be to turn around and run away. Um, there's there's not a chance we'd want to get involved in in anything. Um, uh, not, not, either, not
0: even other, another mud-moving aircraft. So, so this is another one from Noel here, Kev. Uh, what is the absolute low-level altitude AGL that can be set on low-level missions?
1: Well, it, it depends. So we would train down to 100 feet, um, and we turn that out, operational low flying. So, uh, and that was for training as well as, uh, whether well, well, it's obviously operations. So. There are any particular areas in the UK that we could fly down to to those sort of heights but hundred feet would be our absolute minimum it's incredibly difficult though to maintain a hundred feet um, you know especially if you've got any sort form of undulating terrain and the concentration from from the pilot looking out the front and that's pretty much all you know there's no looking left or right at this point it's pretty much staring out the front um, is it, pretty intense at that point so it'd only be for very very short periods of time You've probably seen some of the stuff in Gulf War one where guys were going down to you know it seems like the bottom of the the um you know the bottom of the jet almost touched the uh, touched yeah. the sand you know you't you want to do that so much um but but the reality is it was hundred feet at night if you were using the terrain following radar you could set two hundred feet on the uh, on the control panel so that would be the minimum for a terrain following perspective but again at night time we, we generally you know the, the norm for us was about two hundred and fifty feet. Regardless of what we were doing, and most UK training was, was two hundred and fifty feet and above.
0: And you kind of, I suppose, answer this, but this is from Alexander. But um, uh, so, did they still use the Tornado's TFR to its full capacity? Well, I suppose if
1: you look at full capacity, um, you, you know, like I said, you could set hard ride you set three sort of levels of ride and that basically meant how much positive and negative g the aircraft would would perform to we normally set medium but you could put hard the reality again is sort of half it's half a g and 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 stuff so it wasn't a huge amount uh, and and almost not really noticeable you you could set it down to 200 feet on the ride um uh, height but but again for training it was always 250 and above uh, and in the later years we end up spending you know down to 500 and, and the reason why we ended up sending it 500 feet in the latter years was uh was uh annoyingly the introduction of things like wind farms and the yeah. they're called anemometer masts you know the little yeah. tiny whip masts that would stick up and we just you know we, we never had complete confidence that uh that one of these wouldn't pop up and and start affecting our route. so you know again it was always a safety aspect in mind um but you know an incredibly capable system and and when you start mixing that with um using a a terrain following radar with night vision goggles uh, and and you're able to then blend the two so when when you're not in cloud and you're and and the millilux levels are are sufficient you can fly you know hands hands on um aggressively fly at night time and then if you know if the weather gets poor or the millilux levels get lower you can just you know paddle the you know using the the hands on the throttle and stick uh, paddle the TFR in and out as and when you need it, then suddenly you're, you know, your hands off and the jet's doing it all itself meant that it was unrivaled really in its capability. So uh, in that respect, it, it was used to the full. Absolutely.
0: Well, hopefully uh, Kev's answered your question there, folks. So thank you for putting them in there. But we're going to move on to a, a personal side here, Kev, if that's OK. Sure. So do you have any hobbies? Well, I,
1: I, I do enjoy playing a bit of golf um when i can get around to it uh, i've been fairly busy f- of late and my golf's not been particularly good and obviously combined with all the recent shenanigans with covid and the like i've not been able to play that but um yeah you know other than that it's uh i'm i'm, I'm pretty much you know enjoy a bit of uh you know going for runs and, and and kind of going to the gym and generally keeping fit really is uh is what i like good
0: stuff so favorite aircraft you've flown or operated
1: well, it is definitely the Tornado, uh, you know, without doubt. Although, you know, a very close second is the Hawk. I mean, the Hawk is such a, a great, great little aircraft. It's it's sort of the sports car of the skies and uh, like a go kart. It's uh, it's great, but but for me, without doubt, it, it's it's the GR4. It's um it's it's what I've always wanted to fly and um flying and uh, and it, it was just fantastic. Great, great thing.
0: Absolutely. So, is there a favourite aircraft you wish you could have flown or operated in your military career?
1: Well, you know, if I could go back to you know the forties and, um, uh, and and um, uh, and and kind of you know and, and go and, and you're a pilot, you know, it's obviously I think a Spitfire for me. But I've also got a real love of some of the old World War One fighters. None in you know sort of specific, but you know, I think that that core flying of canvas and um and you know you are directly connected to the controls and all those sort of things uh, i think there's you know some of the old world war one fighters you know, sop with camel and the like are just yes. uh, truly nostalgic i think and um and, and and i've visited duxford a fair few times and they've got some great examples of some of these old old aircraft there as well and and i think some of those i think would be would be absolutely fantastic to be to be in
0: this moves on nicely because uh, you told me the other day as well, like you uh, managed to get a tail dragger from the UK to New Zealand. How did you do that?
1: Yeah, so um, this was the brainchild and the project of a, a good friend of mine called Chris Pote, um, and uh, he he for a long time had wanted to do this this big expedition of taking a, uh, a small aircraft and, and literally flying it, you know, hopping it all the way from the UK to New Zealand. So he first mentioned this probably about. I don't know, eight years ago or so. And, uh, and I sort of went, yeah, <laughs> over a beer, yeah, in the bar. Yeah. So, yes, yeah, great idea. Let me know when, when you get around to it. And then, then in 20, end of 2016, early 2017, he said, I've just bought an aeroplane. <clears throat> right. OK, that's nice. Um, and I'm going to fly it from the UK to New Zealand. Do you remember that chat that we had years ago where you said you'd be up for it? I said, yeah, I do. Would you still be up for it? Yeah. Um, where is this aircraft? He's like, well, it's in bits in my garage at the moment. And, um, and it was a kit, effectively a kit. So he self-built this aircraft. Um, and then, um, a little Eurofox, so 600 kilos, you know, high wing tail dragger, mm-hmm. uh, aircraft. And, and the plan then was he was going to fly the the full thing, uh, down. And then the second seat was going to be occupied by sort of stage pilots. Um, and, and my stage was from, uh, from Cyprus all the way through to, to India wow. with various wow. hops along the way. And that took us about, I think, eight, eight days or so to, to do that. Um, but uh, yeah, and it was an, an incredible journey, um, and and the expanse of, I think, flying over, you flew over you know, Saudi Arabia in one hop, and the expanse of that desert was unbelievable. Mm-hmm. And and you know we we're eight nine thousand feet flying at ninety odd knots, and you know we're we're trying to make Bahrain by by nightfall, having taken off from Haggadah. Um uh, you know that the planning involved in it was 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 pretty immense and um and, and and chris had spent months and months sort of preparing for all the different eventualities to the point where there was so much safety gear in the aircraft um uh, there was almost no space for any personal gear i mean i arrived with a with a small bag you know, like a helmet sized bag mm-hmm. uh, at which point he looked at me and said not a chance there's no space for that and we were incredibly weight limited so for that whole sort of week or so of flying i think we had about four bits of clothing and, and a toothbrush um because there was simply no space for, for anything else but uh, <laughs> but brilliant and and um you know you learned so much just from dealing with different agencies different air traffic agencies different handling agents you know in in guard i think they rolled out this rusty old oil drum and you know <laughs> that was absolutely, oh crikey you know yeah um and and put a put the pump in the top and, and off you go and uh, but but that's you know some of these places is what, you, what what sort of you're dealing with and you know you kind of got to roll with it as much as you can. It's it's very different operating environment uh, around the world to what it is say in the UK.
0: And yeah, we have to talk about your brand new book that's coming out um, next month. This is March two thousand and twenty-one. Uh, it's called the RAF Centenary Flypast. Tell us how this came about and also where we can find it.
1: Yeah, so this it really came about because I ended up doing some speaking sort of gigs, you know, presentations to, to say air cadet groups or um, Royal Aeronautical Society uh, and the like. And, and so in the process, I just collated as much of the information as I can, put it onto a PowerPoint presentation and then, then presented the brief. And as I, and every time I did it, I thought, crikey, there are so many amazing photos that the, the, the RF photographers have taken. Uh, and, and, and there's, interesting maps, some of the planning and and, um, planning data that we had with it. And I just didn't want to lose that in the long run. You know, I had it on my laptop and thought, that isn't very interesting. But who else? You know, there's so much of historical interest that's in there. Um, I spoke to the historical branch and in conjunction with them and and the MOD, um, they were happy for me to use. Uh, you know, the photos that have been collated from all the different Air Force photographers, at all the, at the different bases, um, along with all the, the products that we'd, we'd had together. So it kind of naturally felt that the best place for this was to try and collate it all in a book. So the danger with not doing something like that is it just gets left on a server somewhere and, and no one ever sees oh. it. Um, and then I just started writing it, and um, and it kind of grew to 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 what it was now. And I suddenly realised there's actually quite a lot more to write about a flypast than, than I could imagine. And you know, so it, it it really breaks down to you know a number of different phases. You know, the conceptions. Of how did it all come about? What were the what the struggles and what the difficulties associated with it. And then the planning. You know, how did we plan this thing and get get all the aircraft together in one place and get them in. And 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 then more importantly, how do we all, all break the big formations apart and get them home? And then all the contingency planning, the interaction with the CAA, London Heathrow and all the authorities to, to get the approvals. Um, and then, yeah, i pop the book and Pen and Sword, who are the publishers, um, very kindly agreed to sort of publish it. And, um, and then so you can you can find it on their website. I think I've sent you a link to that if, you, if you're able yeah. to do it. It's also on I think Waterstones and um, uh, and Amazon as well.
0: And is it, in, is it going to be hardback, uh, paperback or Kindle or a mixture of all?
1: At the moment it's hardback um, and I think uh, that there may be Kindle options uh, later on, but certainly it's a hardback option that you can, you can purchase on pre-order now.
0: Brilliant, so I'll link all them um, um, uh, in the description below uh, where you can buy it. Uh, but can we find, uh, do you have like a Facebook page or anything like that for the book?
1: There is, yeah. So if you search for um, uh, RF Centenary Flypast, there's a uh, there's a Facebook page set up um, on there. There's also a link then to the website, and there's also a, a sort of a, a collection of some of the photos and, and the like that you'll see within the book. And I think for me that the core of the book is is the fact that you've you know there's 150 images uh, on top of all of the you know the the, the wordage the verbiage that, that's gone into it as well. Uh, and again, they're, they're photos that I think, and, and, a, and an event that I think will never be never be replicated again. Um, but there'll be a small selection on the Facebook page. Um, and there's also, I'm on, also on Instagram and, and, uh, and LinkedIn if uh, if you're interested as well.
0: Yeah, and again, I'll link them all in the description below. But uh, Kev, what a pleasure talking to you. It's been great to you know get a snippet of your career and being involved. In such a, you know, a monumental event uh, as the REF 100 flypast, but thank you very much for coming on. It's really appreciated. And uh, Mike, thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.